And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe, spinning around the sun at 18 and a half miles per second, rotating at the equator at over a thousand miles an hour, heading toward Hercules at something like 200 to 300 miles per hour. And we could go on and on and on because there's a lot of motion going on. Well, welcome to this other side of midnight, this uh, edition. I have the great pleasure of having an old friend. He's not actually that old. In fact, you can scroll down on his page and you'll see he's actually quite young. But we've known each other for quite a while, for decades. And we've been through some interesting things. We're going to talk about some of those things tonight because they are now relevant. Tonight's show, the title of tonight's show is Will Disclosure Actually Begin on Mars? And it's my firm belief that it will. And others may have, you know, different opinions. As my uh, grandfather would say, your, your mileage may vary. But um, we're going to talk about this whole idea of disclosure. I mean, uh, Don and I have similar feelings in certain ways and different feelings in other ways. So we're going to kind of explore all that. But before we get to that and the attendant topics of UFOs and aliens and ETs and family members and distant cousins in outer space and hidden government agendas and secret space programs, etc., let me start with a few items here at the top. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's graphic, which is really cool. I mean, I'm going to explain as we go through the show what that graphic is because it's not exactly what you might think. There, there's some background to that graphic. But if you click on that, that will take you to Don's page, to the guest page tonight. Scroll down under Radio with Pictures, My Items. Hawaii is doing its thing. The uh, Kilauea volcano is getting ready to maybe do something quite, uh, um, in the words of one reporter, terrifying. Um, all those people who built houses right around the volcano because it was cheap. Now you're going to find out why it was cheap. You know, rule of thumb, do not build on a active volcano. I mean, this volcano has been going on and on and on for decades. So one wonders what goes through people's minds when they buy property on the flanks of an active volcano at 19.5. Now, a, a new wrinkle has been introduced into this conversation. I saw a news item and I couldn't go back and find it. For some reason, you know, rule, rule, you know, memo to self. Whenever you see something really interesting, save the damn thing right away. Because if you go on, if you find something else interesting and you want to go back, well, you, you know the story. This story has to do with volcanologists and geologists on the west coast of the mainland of CONUS, the continent of the United States. And they're now looking, and apparently they're looking seriously at the idea that there may be some, shall we say, uh, hiccups and volcanic activity among the volcanoes up and down the west coast of the continental United States. And before you say, oh, that's impossible, it's not me saying it, it's professionals in the field, volcanologists who are saying this. Now, they're talking about the ring of fire being kind of energized, and that gets into this whole idea. And the reason that we're kind of reporting on every show at the status of the, uh, of the Hawaiian situation, because... Again, in the model of the physics, the physics is changing. It is rising. Surf is up. And one of the attendant uh, situations with that model is that there's a lot more energy sloshing around in the system, being converted in 3D into heat, into thermal activity, into molten lava. And, of course, at the 19.5 hotspot on the planet, Hawaii would be the first one would predict in this model to indicate something unusual, and it is. Now, again, what they're cautioning is that as the uh, magma kind of drains back into the magma chamber underneath Hawaii, underneath actually the Pacific Ocean, at some point the level of lava will lower to where water, seawater from the surrounding Pacific, a very large ocean, is going to be able to penetrate into the volcanic throat 
And when you mix lava at very high temperatures, thousands of degrees with water, you get steam and you get a steam engine and you get a steam explosion or a series of explosion. And that could uh, create a concatenation of events, which would toss, they're saying, refrigerator size blocks miles in the sky. And of course, what goes up, even at 19.5, will come down and you do not want to be under those things coming down. So um, more people have been evacuated now from those two villages on the flanks of the uh, volcano, of the Kilauea volcano. And it's anybody's guess what's going to happen next, except there are geologists now warning that the west coast of the United States should look to some of its so-called dormant volcanoes. Remember Mount St. Helens? Wasn't that dormant, was it? after a while. Anyway, moving on. Item number two um, is really kind of peculiar because the headline is astronaut Scott Kelly. Remember, he's one of the two Kelly twins that did the space station experiment. One twin stayed home. It's kind of like the Einstein twin paradox. You know, one leaves at the speed of light and comes back and supposedly is supposed to be younger under relativity. Well, this was not quite that dramatic. One astronaut stayed home. And one astronaut went up in the space station, in the ISIS space station, for a little over a year, I think, if I remember correctly. And then when they came back, the idea was to compare all kinds of bodily factors, you know, uh, what do they call those uh, critical functions or, or um, there, there's a medical term for heart rate and respiration and all that, plus a whole bunch of much more involved tests up to and including they measured um, the astronaut who was the brother who was in, in orbit for the year. They measured the length of his telomeres, which are these things at the end of your um, genes that are supposed to get shorter uh, as you grow older. And they found that there were interesting changes in the length of his telomeres by being in space in orbit. Well, going back to the physics, I mean, they, they say these are mysterious changes, there are people who are saying, oh, it's radiation. No, it's much more interesting. Because remember, in order to stay in orbit in the space station, the twin who was in space had to be moving relative to the twin who was on the ground at 17,500 miles per hour. Day after day, week after week, month after month. And that angular momentum in the HD model equations of hyperdimensional physics will cause changes in the rate of change of the physics just by the angular momentum of being in orbit. I mean, we see this with some very interesting experiments the Chinese conducted several years ago. I think I've talked about this on the show uh, earlier. Um, they put seeds in, in, in their space station and then they brought them back and the seeds grow prolifically. They are bountiful. They're you know, bigger plants, tougher plants, stronger plants, need less water. The seeds being in space, according to the Chinese, change the seed genetics to where their their life ability, their life energy is, is more. And of course, one of the things I wanted to do a couple of years ago when the story came out is I wanted to actually go to China to Beijing and do a presentation on the hyperdimensional model and show them that they could do this much cheaper just by doing it on the ground. There are ways to do this on the ground. And one of the ways is with uh, Dr. James DeMeo's orgone accumulator cabinets. And um, he, when he was on the show a couple of times, he talked about the plant experiments, controls outside the cabinets in equivalent but non orgone construction and plants inside cabinets and there is a dramatic and distinct difference well it's that difference because moving in orbit around the earth the etheric slash torsion field slash orgone uh, exposure of living beings living things is different than being down here on the ground and that's what went on with the uh, kelly boys one exposed in space was exposed to a different ether, different density, different frequencies, different everything than the guy who stayed home, the brother who stayed home, the astronaut who stayed home. And 
that apparently showed up in the telomeres and a bunch of other interesting genetic indicators. And, you know, again, if you don't have the right model to interpret medically what you're seeing, you'll never figure it out. So it'd be nice if someone at NASA was listening to us and would uh, give us a call because I could point them in interesting directions for why uh, the astronaut who went upstairs is now, he's not really truly a twin anymore. He's just slightly different, which, of course, really blew a lot of people's minds. And hopefully tonight I've explained maybe one explanation for why uh, that could be. So without further ado, because the rest of the items on, on my section are going to be part of our discussion tonight, as will the comments and questions at the very bottom of the page. If you want to send us questions, um, you can do that. You log on to the other side of midnight.com. You click on that graphic for tonight which is uh, Mother's Day. By the way, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the audience. Mothers, mothers-to-be, former mothers. No, actually, you can't be a former mother. Once a mother, always a mother. Anyway, um, you, you click on that graphic, and then you scroll down on, on Don's page. The very bottom, there is a new comment section. And you can make a comment, or you can ask a question. You can also do it through Discord. We have people looking at Discord, and they will relay me questions. Um, and our listenership is mounting nicely. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest of the evening. Don Ecker and I have known each other a very long time. So let me kind of get into this here. Don is a writer, researcher, commentator, currently living somewhere in an undisclosed location in the Los Angeles area. We, we say that to protect, you know, his uh, privacy. He has served as the former director of research and media liaison for UFO magazine for 20 years. He is also an internationally renowned investigator of the UFO phenomenon in general, a former law enforcement officer and criminal investigator with over 10 years of pounding a beat experience. He brought legitimacy to a field that has for years suffered being painted with a fringe brush. Don has written numerous articles for the definitive UFO publication, UFO Magazine, as well as articles for international publications, the United Kingdom's Fortean Times, Omni, CompuServe, Paranet, and we could go on and on and on. So rather than, than you know, waste time by reading, because you can go and read all that stuff. Don, welcome to the other side of midnight. Well, thank you, Richard. It's been a, a, a long time. Well, actually, not a real long time. <laughs> you were on my program the other evening. We did a delightful two-hour interview. But, yeah, since uh, you've grilled me, had me on the hot seat and grilled <laughs> me, it's been quite a while. I don't and, grill people. Oh, come on. Come on, Dick. You know you do. I, well, I, I, I kind of interrupt them sometimes, but I don't grill them, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, but anyway, it's it's genuinely a pleasure to be here, and uh, like I said, it had been a while, and it's great to reconnect. When did we first meet? I've been trying to think back. I mean, there's some interesting people in my life that I fondly remember, and, you know, I have, don't talk to them every day, but I remember them fondly. Vicky is one. Well, did, did I meet you through Vicky, or did you meet Vicky through me, or how did? No, 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 no. You, you, uh, you met me after I moved down here and uh, was on uh, the staff of UFO Magazine when I took over uh, as director of research. And uh, let me think. I believe you were out here in the LA area. I had uh, uh, Vicky's copy of your book, Monuments of Mars. I was reading it at the time. And uh, when we first met, uh, I grilled you on quite a bit of that. So, hmm. Okay. Let's delve into your background because, again, we have, you know, new audiences. And, and my friend uh, Fred Lundgren once compared audiences, radio audiences, to frogs in a wheelbarrow. They're constantly jumping in and out and you can't track anyone. So there's a bunch of people that don't know who Don Ecker is. So let's start at the beginning. The thing that I always found so interesting about you, Don, in this strange, strange field of ufology, you really had a formal professional background as someone who knew how to ask questions, who knew how to think, who knew how to put evidence together to build cases 
i.e. you were a police investigator, a detective, I think, at one point. So let's kind of start there, okay? How did a detective grilled, grilled, grounded in the, see, grilling is on my mind now, grounded in the real world of, you know, um, uh, famous Seamuses of, of the past, how the heck did you get involved in something as fringe and flaky as UFOs? Well, I guess the actual genesis would had to have been in December, Dick, of 1966. Now, <clears throat> I live in the uh, San Fernando Valley today, but uh, out here on the West Coast. But originally, I'm from the East Coast, from Central Western Pennsylvania. Hmm. And, and back in those days, uh, I was in high school, and around November, December, in my part of the country, Dick, it's like Christmas, New Year's, Easter, and Halloween all rolled up together at the very beginning of deer season. I was a hunter. And uh, I was out with, with several of my buddies, and we had been hunting up around the Horseshoe Curve. About how old which were you? It, uh, 16, mm-hmm. 16, 17. Okay. <clears throat> Rite uh, of passage in western Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. And as we were coming home, it was sometime after 4 in the afternoon. And as you can imagine, at that time of the year, it gets very dark very soon. And we were coming down off this uh, this hill when suddenly one of my my buddies started yelling and jumping up and down. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, Lord, that dummy saw a deer. He's going to scare it off. <laughs> and I turned around and I looked and he had his head pointed straight up in the in the sky. And I looked and I couldn't believe my eyes. There were four. Brilliant. I And when I say brilliant, I'm talking arc light brilliant objects in a diamond formation that were overflying us. Probably, I'm guessing, because I really, I don't know, uh, maybe 12, 15,000 feet wow. up in the air. Wow. But they were not going very fast. And when I say not fast... Maybe 150, maybe, you know, 200 miles an hour. Like an airliner. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, that's quite a bit slower. Well, than an prob- I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, DC-3, that kind of thing. Right, right. And suddenly, literally, as they overflew us, the light in the rear deck suddenly shot straight up into the sky. And I'm talking like an Atlas rocket lifting off. Once it gets that boost and bingo, Hmm. it was gone. Now these other three lights that are now Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You said this was in diamond formation. How big in the sky was the diamond? Was it the moon size? Was it like covering with two hands? Was it... If I would have held my hand up into the air, and I've got to think back on this now... My hand, looking at it uh, from my eyes to my hand to the objects, they probably would have extended on all sides of my hand a bit. Hmm. Uh, In other words, my hand would not have covered them. So it was a reasonably tight formation. Yes. Yes. But when that last light took off from the rear, now suddenly... The three objects remaining, still heading in the same direction, and they were heading east, as I recall. They suddenly hit an incredible burst of speed, and within mere seconds, they were gone. Hmm. From a literally, you know, and and what, what caused that is anyone's guess. But what was originally a leisurely flight suddenly within seconds all four of them were just gone and they were now, like brilliant arc lights you couldn't see any detail no not a thing now what what was really amazing about this i immediately when we went home i went home and i immediately told my parents about it now my father 
Dick was probably one of the most pragmatic people you would ever have met. But it was back in 1964, sometime during the spring. I'll never forget this. Uh, we were getting ready to go out, the whole family. We were going to go out somewhere. And my dad was in the living room reading the newspaper. So this is roughly two years before this this incident. Exactly, yes. And oh, two and a half years, probably. And he yelled at me. He said, uh, Don, come in here. And I walked into the living room, and he was holding the newspaper up to me. And he said, look at this. And he handed it to me. And you know what it was? Dick, it was the the Lonnie Zamora. Oh, uh, my gosh. Here in New Mexico. Right. Southern New right. Mexico. So, you know, I, I would have never figured my my father would have been, you know, interested in that. But it was later when I. Well, wait, wait, wait. wait. The, the key thing about the Lonnie Zamora case is it was a police officer who was reporting something amazing. That's correct. I wonder if that's what your dad tripped on. I think it might have been. It might have been. Uh, but then I found out uh, he passed away in 19. My father passed away in 1986 from an illness. And it was not until after the funeral was over that I discovered an amazing story from one of my family members when I was overseas in Southeast Asia during the uh, the Vietnam War, uh, he had a he was outside. It was summertime. He was outside cutting the grass around uh, my parents' home when he suddenly came running into the house, shouting at my mother and sister, "Quick, quick, quick! Run outside!" Now mm. you know this, this is almost too coincidental. But uh, my mother and my sister both swore it was true. They came running out. He had been, he had a riding lawnmower, okay? And he had been cutting, we had a big piece of property. He had been cutting this grass. And uh, as he was cutting the grass, he noticed in his peripheral vision what he thought was something on the roof of the house. Oh. But it wasn't. On the roof of the house, it was flying around the roof what? of the house, and he described. You mean like a it, drone? No, no, no. He described it as looking. Now listen to this very carefully, because I went back to Jacques Vallée, okay, and I forget which book it was where he was talking about those uh, horrific incidents down in South America from some of those those objects that were flying around down there and hurting people mm. because this sounded just like it. He described it as a flying refrigerator-shaped object with what looked like antennas hanging out. Now, I mean, it doesn't get much weirder than that. So I, I don't even know what to say about it. I yeah, wasn't well, 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 When I asked the question about drones, I wasn't saying it was a drone. I'm saying its motion would be like right. a drone circling yes. your your house, right? My parents' home, yes. Wow. Yes. At roof so, level. Well, right above roof level. Right above roof level. Something the and size the of thing- a refrigerator with antenna, and you had the house to compare, or he did, so he knew the size and the relative motion and all that. Wow. Right, right. So how do you explain something like that? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't even try. Uh, it was his sighting, not mine. But uh, he never mentioned anything about this to me ever. And it wasn't like I said until after his funeral uh, when I found out about this, I wished I would have known before, but, but my I didn't. God. so that that's basically, those are the things that originally got me into this field. Now in, in 1986, in the early part of 86, while a police officer on duty, I was wounded in the line of duty and subsequently ended up in the hospital for quite a while. Boy. And, uh, I guess, and I, that ultimately uh, ended up, I was medically retired, 
But uh, while I was going through physical rehab, uh, I needed something to keep me occupied. And, you know, this is like circa 1987. And, uh, Dick, I bought my first computer system. <laughs> okay. From Tandy, okay, Radio Shack, a Tandy 1000EX. Oh, the little, the little notebook size thingy that I did. I did half of Monuments, the last half on a Tandy with the eight lines and you had to scroll and you had to save it on the little audio recorder. It was Well, I had I ended up getting one of those, but no, this was this was a regular uh computer, but uh, I mean compared desktop, to desktop. today. Okay. Uh, well, nah, the 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 actual computer itself was about the size of an electric typewriter. Okay? It it did not have its own I mean, you had to hook up a monitor to it. In the the uh, typewriter-sized contraption was one disk drive, okay, mm. a 360K, <laughs> five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy drive. So, <laughs> but, oh, my heaven, did, did I grow to love that. I, I tricked it out. And then I compounded that mistake by uh, adding a modem to it, Dick. And I was off and running. Now, when I did that, okay, I discovered CompuServe to the tune of $6.40 an hour when you're oh, online with oh, your 300-odd yeah. Oh, modem. my God, yes, yes. Huh. Yeah. And I came across a forum there called the Issues Forum. And I was kind of curious, and I started jumping into that. And I came across some stories, some, some articles about cattle mutilation. Now, that caused me to click to the on position because in 1981-82, I had, as a criminal investigator, investigated two cattle mutilations in the state of Idaho. I was living in Idaho then. And... <clears throat> At the time, 81, 82, when I was involved with that, uh, I had no idea, none, what in the world was going on. I mean, there was nothing out there like there is today. Today, you can pop cattle mutilation into your search engine. Oh, my God, yeah. And, you know, and it, you it, can, it, it, it's so funny you say that because I remember I was visiting a friend of mine in New York in her apartment on the Upper West Side overlooking the Hudson. And we were listening to radio. I don't know. It wasn't art. It was just, just general radio. And a story came on about cattle mutilations somewhere out west. And it was just one story. There was never any follow-up. There was no way you could do follow-up. But it was like ping that raised the whole UFO thing to a totally different level. I'll tell you what, let's hold it there because my guest this morning is Don Ecker. We're kind of going to meander through the various uh, uh, occurrences of um, ufology, picking and choosing the most interesting leads. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Meandering through ufology. Don't go away. the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration 
And be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell, automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, Here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5. Literally, the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now... Back to the show. Welcome back to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night for Mother's Day. A high, a hail hearty welcome to the show to all the mothers and mothers to be. And uh, I won't go through that thing again. Anyway, Don, uh, let's pick up. This was your kind of sabbatical. I guess at that point you didn't know that you were not going to be a police officer for the rest of your life. But you had downtime, and you got a computer, and you tripped over cattle mutilations. Hmm. Please pick up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 1981, uh, and this was just after Halloween, I was assigned a case that happened in uh, southeastern Idaho, where a, uh, a farmer rancher had gone to bed the uh, the night before, which, as a matter of fact, and this this was one of the oddities about it, as I recall. Uh, 
uh, Halloween night, okay, and he woke up the next morning. It had rained sometime during the night, Dick, and uh, the ground was wet, muddy, and what have you. And uh, out his back door, roughly oh, 90 feet, perhaps, uh, which would have been about 30 yards, about 90 feet, give or take, uh, there was a dead cow lying down in the dirt, in the mud, okay? Now, was he a rancher and, who, who ran cattle? Well, he, he had some. He was not entirely a, I mean, he had cattle. And I'm trying to remember now, they might have been dairy cattle. Uh, but at any rate, he had probably uh, maybe a dozen, two dozen head mm. of cattle. It's, it's been a while. It's been a long time. Okay. But, but he wasn't a huge uh, cattle rancher. And... Uh, so having the one animal? having having one dead cow would be a major hit for someone who had maybe a dozen or two dozen. Right, absolutely, yes. And uh, now you gotta you gotta remember at that time there were a lot of cattle mutes hap happening around the West. And incidentally, Dick, and and this is something I found out uh, later when I really jumped into this. Uh, in my state, home state of Pennsylvania, there were also mutilations hmm. going on. And not only mutilations going on, but there were sightings of crypto, what were described as crypto animals. Everything from hominid apes. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, a Sasquatch kind kind of animal. No, no. Who's that, who's that great UFO guy in Pennsylvania? Stan, Stan... Gordon. Gordon. He reported Stan. decades ago about hominid, almost like Yeti-type, but not Yeti-type creatures in Pennsylvania. Right. And not only that, not only, not only hominid creatures, but weird birds. Now, back in, in 66... When I was in high school, okay, uh, this was during the period of time when you remember the great campy uh, comedy Batman that was on, on television. Uh, television. I hated right. it. I hate yeah. every week. I hated it because they were camping up something that I thought should be like Superman. Remember the Superman series? Serious, interesting, good plot sometimes. The Batman thing was a total farce and I hated it. Right. It was it was just pure camp. But there was a case that was happening in West Virginia, which was only literally uh, by car a couple of hours from where I lived. And that was the case later made internationally famous by John Keel. The oh, Mothman the Mossman. And they, they coined that Mothman term because of, of Batman, uh, the TV show. Remember, they right. had the Penguin, they had the yep, Joker. Yep, they, yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so there had been in that part of the, of the United States, uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, some incidents and cases with extraordinarily high strangeness that, for the most part, were never reported. Now, it's like when I saw those, those UFOs with my, with my uh, high school buddies when we were deer hunting. We went home that night, and I told my parents about it. And for the next week, I haunted <laughs> the newspaper, and I haunted, you know, listening to the radio not one beep about it. Not, not a, one. Nothing. Well. So anyway, uh, so here I am in 81, 82 with this case. And surprisingly, I thought at the time, my department wanted to shovel it under the rug. Well, wait, wait. How, how as a police investigator did you get onto a cattle mutilation case was there was there a human involved was there a possibility yeah, it was of an agricultural they they looked at it originally as an agricultural crime okay okay you're talking about an animal that is uh worth uh 
Uh, well, let me see. Nineteen a few a few grand, I would think. Yeah, it would it would be a grand or more. And like you said, with with a small businessman like this guy was, and that's what he was. Yeah, we can call him a rancher, farmer, but he was a small businessman. Mm-hmm. He has a couple of hits like that, and it is you know it's it's uh, hasta la vista. Baby. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm getting oh. this picture, Don, of you wearing McLeod's hat. <laughs> no, I never wore a hat. Never, never wore a hat. Nope. But uh, anyway, so, oh, well, Dick, one other thing. There was another ranch over the hill, so to speak, from this guy. Same night, he lost a cow. Oh. Now, here, here's what was, was strange about it when I went out initially. Okay. Now, like I, you remember me mentioning it had rained. Yes. So I'm looking around footprints. I'm looking around tire tracks, tire tracks gum wrappers, you know, crumpled up cigarette butts. Everybody smoked back then. And, you know, I'm looking around and there's nothing. Now, the animal had been mutilated, an eyeball had been removed. Uh, there was a patch removed from uh, his from the animal's hip. The sexual organs had been taken out, hmm. and the rectum had been cored. But here was the kicker, as far as I was concerned, and this is the thing that spooked me: there was no blood. Oh, oh, oh! No blood. So, you know, that just doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, later on, years later, uh, I wrote a novel. Uh, I've always been a a great fan of of horror. And I wrote a novel that concerned a government, an American government military project utilizing an actual vampire. Hmm. And all of that went back to this case when I discovered that animal with no blood. Was this before X-Files? Oh, this was... I mean, when you wrote the novel. Oh, no, no. The novel, I wrote the novel. It was published in 2004. Oh, okay, okay. And I had started the novel in uh, 2001. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, how is a McLeod of Idaho? Did you look at this crime scene? No blood. How did you explain it? I didn't. How could I? How could I? And the well, who, who, who did you reach out to? That's the, my next question. Oh, look, I, I, <laughs> I called the university. Uh, we spoke to veterinarians. I talked to the rancher. I mean, this was not an unknown thing among ranchers and, and farmers. Okay, Uh, the rumor mill had been beating for some time, and it was also along about that time, uh, and I would have to go back and check to make sure, that Linda Moulton Howe first came out with her, when she was a reporter, her uh, documentary uh, uh, science thing on A Strange Harvest. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, and and I, I... I didn't know at the time who in the world Linda Howe was. I didn't know, you know, what the story was. Later, when I did a lot of research, I found out that, for example, in your part of the country right now, in New Mexico, they had so many mutilations happening down there that the state, the uh, uh, senator, uh, what in the world was his name? Harrison Schmidt, I think. Was that him? The astronaut. No, no. Well, this guy was a senator. Tried well, Harrison Schmidt did run and, and became a senator for one term. Then that 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 was probably him. Uh, had tried to get the FBI involved. Okay. I mean, wait a minute. This is a guy who went to the moon with uh, Gene Cernan on Apollo 17. You mean to tell me that as a U.S. senator, he could not get the FBI to start looking no, into this? No, they refused. They refused. Oh. They said the only way... The only now this this was well look hey Dick take a look at at the news today 
there's a lot of funkiness going on with the FBI and apparently for a long time. But they at that time said that they couldn't get involved because there was no way they could show cross-state, what appeared to be cross-state criminal acts, even though Colorado, Nevada, the state of Washington, the state of Oregon, the state of Montana, the state of Idaho, all those places had been hit with cattle mutilation. So they were saying that technically, unless you could identify a mutilated cow that had been transported across state lines, they had no jurisdiction. Right. They said they couldn't become involved. Fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, I could I could regale you with some more stories. Hey, we have time. It. We have three hours. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, it has nothing to do with mutilation, but uh, uh, the FBI were, you know, by many of the uh, more local law enforcement agencies were not looked upon with uh, high praise, shall we say. Hmm. So at any rate, so there, there was this, this case and it was never solved. Now, did you actually take samples and look at the cuts under a microscope or try to do pathology or that kind of stuff? I did. I didn't, but, but others did, but absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You bet. And what, and what did they report? Well, the, the cuts now, once again, now, how many years ago is this? This is my Lord. This is closing in on 40 years ago. Uh, the cuts were extremely refined, if you know what I mean. Uh, today, probably, I would be looking, if, if I were involved in something like that, I would be looking at it to find out if something like a laser scalpel had been employed. Uh but imagine this. Now, here's a. This was the other thing, Dick, that was so hard to fathom. Here was a guy, this rancher, farmer, who was married, had, if I remember, three children, had a couple of dogs, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that goes without saying. And nobody heard a bloody thing wow. that night. The dogs never alerted. Now, you, you could look at that several ways if, in fact, there was something beyond a mundane explanation. But uh, Well, wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on. If, if, if we're looking at, say, I mean, the usual excuses are Satanist, ritual. But if we're looking at terrestrial technology, how do you eliminate the blood? I mean, a cow has a lot of blood. And when you open veins, it's going to gush well, that, out. That- that's one of the hallmarks, as I discovered later in the mutilation thing. In a genuine, actual animal carcass that has been determined to have been a victim of this mutilation process. What's the technical term for that? Ex- ex- exsanguination or something where the blood is drained from the whole animal? Yes, exsanguination is the norm. Hmm. Now, I, I had a long conversation one time. I, I became familiar and I met John Keel, uh, who was a, a very much lauded paranormal uh, writer, uh, researcher. This guy, you know, John Keel, K-E-E-L. Mm-hmm. Look, look him up. I met not- him once at a conference in Virginia, and I'm going to hold off my impression of him till you tell me yours but what did you think of john keel well there there was there was uh i liked keel okay he was irascible mm-hmm. he, he could be uh, uh shall we say a, a, a bit touchy upon occasion uh if you crossed keel he could uh very cheerfully Chew on your rear end for <laughs> a sufficient amount of time. Okay, but but I I knew John. I knew John. I I had met John, and then we we ran into each other a few times. As a matter of fact, I have a, a very close friend out here who had been in the entertainment business, and back in the early nineties, uh, we were trying to work together on a project. He came to me. 
And he said, you know, he said, my God, he said, uh, this book you loaned me, The Mothman Prophecies. He said, wow. He said, do you know if anybody's ever uh, tried to option that? And this is before that that horrible movie with uh, Richard Gere. And I, I didn't care for that at all. Mm. I never saw so it. I, mm. Well, I, I called Keel up. And I said, John, I said, I, I have a friend here from the entertainment industry, and he'd like to, to chat with you about the possibility of optioning your book. Well, the bottom line was, Kiel couldn't have cared less. <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> that, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, that never went anywhere. But, but I had a, a, a very long conversation with Kiel because... This mutilation research took me in an absolutely unbelievable direction that I ended up spending three years trying to follow up on. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But okay. I'm talking to Keel, and I told him about this case that I was involved in. And I said, John, I said, there was no blood. He said, yeah. He said, that's, that's the way it, it usually always is. And I said, well, what in the world? And I, you know, I, I didn't know what we're talking about. Keel at that time had already moved beyond thinking any of this was a result of extraterrestrial intervention. Keel began going down the same pathway as Jacques Vallée, thinking that it must be interdimensional. Hmm. All of the Skinwalker Ranch kind of inter. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what in the world would they be doing with the blood? I mean, this biological material. And he kind of looked at me. And, and a lot said, of it for a book? He said, you read my book, right? <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course. He said, do you remember my writing about the men in black? And I said, yeah. He said, now, how are those men in black always described? Well, let oh me see. Oh, my God. Robotic and, and uh, you know, extraordinarily pale. I mean, Dick, if you talk about it, it almost reminds you of a vampire, right? Like they're very, 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 very anemic. Yes. And he said, I think... He said, it's my theory that whatever this is, he said, is utilizing that biological material to bring these entities, creatures, whatever, from that reality into ours. Now, what do I think about that? Well, I don't know. That's a heck of a stretch. Well, it, you know? it, 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 at several levels, because for one thing, only primitive societies have to make use of stuff in 3D, you know, mining stuff, plowing stuff, that kind of thing. Advanced technologies manufactured out of the ether, out of the torsion field, bingo, just like that. So why would you want gross biological contamination of an animal in the middle of a primitive planet like Earth to, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't logically seem to hang together. It seems much more ritualistic than technological well who said that would be wrong oh, i didn't say it was wrong i'm just saying if keel no, thought that was necessary making, see there's I'm making a point there, there's necessary and then there's the frills the bells and whistles the surrounding ritual of something well you know <clears throat> keel was uh, one of those guys that if the whole auditorium was turning down the right side, John <laughs> would turn left. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's how he was. I'll never forget at UFO magazine on, uh, around the 50th anniversary of the Roswell event, uh, maybe a bit before he had sent an article into the magazine we published Talking that, well, you know, I always thought that maybe Roswell could be uh, described as a, a leftover Japanese Fuego balloon that came down. Or Fugo, Fugo balloon. Mm -hmm. 
And oh my Lord, did he set the field <laughs> off in a fire? You know, here's Stanton Friedman, Roswell, E.T., Kevin Randall, Don Schmidt, Roswell, E.T., you know, half the people in the UFO field, Roswell, E.T. And here's Keel throwing a suggestion out there that it might not be. So, yeah, he, <laughs> I think, I think half of his, uh, his shtick was just to see how many people he could get, uh, get railed up. Yep. Yep. No, I, that's the Keel that I'm at. Yep. So let's see. So the path, however, Richard, that I ended up then traveling down starting about 1988 was I was confronted with now I, I don't want to freak anybody out. And I mean, this, this is a matter of record. You can find uh, uh, stuff that I wrote about it on the web even today. But I started following up. I had been uh, presented with a case of human mutilation. Mm. In Idaho? I don't know. Well, yeah, ac- absolutely, yes. But when I began to research it, okay, um, well, the guy, the guy that had been found in Idaho was down near uh, the area of Twin Falls. Uh, some hunters came across a human body, a male, okay, uh, that was lying there with just a pair of underwear. No shoes, no socks, no pants, no shirt, no jacket. And he was dead, and he was mutilated like a cow. Now, they saw that. These two two hunters saw it, freaked out. One of them went and uh, contacted the local police. I found out about this through the then state director of MUFON for the state of Idaho. Don Mason was his name. And, you know, uh, my old detective hat, you know, I pulled that out of the closet. I said I'd never wear wear a hat. Well, this was more of a metaphorical hat. And I pulled that out of the closet and I said, hmm, I'm going to see what I can find out about this. So I started doing some in-depth research. And that's about the time that I contacted John Keel. And uh, he handed me a couple of mutilation cases that had come from Central America. One happened in Mexico where a severed human body dropped out of the sky onto a highway. Wow. Now, yeah, it, it happened, you know, people are driving down the highway Suddenly, this stuff came falling out of the sky. Uh, From the way Keel described it to me, uh, this couple, a husband and wife, the guy slammed on the brakes, uh, pulled over to the side of the road, jumped out, and uh, they saw nothing. But here was a dead, severed body. Now, I don't know if it had all the other classical mutilation uh, cuts, but uh, tell you I mean, what, tell you what, hold it there. We're, we're at the top of the hour. We have a break coming up. I don't want to <clears throat> sever this story. My guest this morning, Don Ecker, and we have meandered down a very interesting new path: cattle mutilations, segueing into human mutilations. Stay tuned for the rest of this one. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
want to talk to you for a couple of minutes about something that's very important, very timely. We touched on it initially last night. We have got this extraordinary opportunity to take the workshop that we did on Monday of uh, this week. Oh, it's only it's Sunday of the same week. I mean, so much is happening so quickly these days. And we have an opportunity to edit it into a form to be presented through a 100% guaranteed conduit. Friend of mine I know in New York, major media person, uh, executive, has his own show, uh, deeply invested in Salem, major media broadcast uh, corporation. Anyway, this individual has offered to transport, to take personally, the edited version of this workshop, this four-hour workshop we did on stunning stuff on the moon, on Mars, on Pluto, with the membership of Club 19.5, to take and transmit this directly to the President of the United States. In fact, I announced this on, on Don's show on, on Friday night. I thought I would kind of give him a little bit of a surprise, which I think I did. Anyway, we are in the process. We need to raise some money to do the editing for equipment, for software, for a bunch of stuff that we're not, we're not a television you know, group. We're, we're, we're radio. So Kinthea is working. Remember that great line in Star Trek, you know, stone knives and bearskins? And we need some wherewithal. We need a little cash to make this professional and to edit it down because we can't really send him four hours. He's not going to watch four hours. We might be able to send the rest of it after the initial interest, but uh, we got to do something that actually makes it uh, what an executive would have time to take a look at and the most interesting stuff. So that requires hands-on editing, and that requires funds. And software these days to do this stuff is not cheap, particularly if it's to a high standard. I mean, one file is like 30 gigabytes, 30 gigs can you imagine trying to do this on a, on a laptop? Anyway, so if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on, if you're on a smartphone, click on your nav bar and you'll see something called donate. All right, it's on the, on the computer. It's right there on the left-hand side of your screen. Just scroll up and it says donate now. Click on that. That will take you to PayPal. Send us what you can afford. I mean, this is time critical. We have a window here. There's going to be a major meeting between the president and Kim Jong-un in um, a little less than, actually about a month, on June 12th. And we'd like to have this in his hands before that meeting. And in coming days and weeks, I will describe to you why there's some logic, a really important set of logic there. And then there's supposed to be a planned discussion with Vladimir Putin sometime after that. There's been talk of the president going to Moscow. That's going to be an interesting circus. Wouldn't it be nice if he had this video with him to show the president of Russia, a la the conversation between President Reagan and Gorbachev back in the 1980s regarding what we would do as a planet if we were confronted by an alien extraterrestrial reality that stands still? I mean, the ruins on the moon and Mars and other places, they stand still, aren't Space agencies have taken umpteen photographs. The Russians have taken photographs. The Japanese have taken photographs. The Chinese have confirmed stunningly what Apollo photographed over 40 years before. So if you want to help be part of history, if you want to really strike a blow for something that is going to change history, I'd strongly recommend that you, you know, gear up some spare change, get it together, Click that PayPal button and send it to us. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. 
You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.